Shalhevet High School presents the Radical Moderation Podcast. Here's your host, Rabbi Ari Siegel. Hello and welcome to the Radical Moderation Podcast. I'm your host, actually your horse host, lost my voice, Ari Siegel. I'm here with Rabbi David Bashevkin, the Director of Education for NCSY National Congregation for Synagogue Youth. Is that true? National? We actually don't go by the acronym anymore. We're just NCSY because we used to be National Congregation of Synagogue Youth, but youth stopped going to the synagogue, so we're just NCSY. Interesting. So you actually continue using the acronym. You don't use the Correct. We okay. dropped, yeah. You also teach a course at Yeshiva University, and you are on the editorial board of the Jewish Action Magazine. Is that correct? Still am, yes. So <clears throat> thank you for joining us, uh, David. I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. Uh, for those of you listening who've been enjoying the podcast, I'd encourage you to give us a five-star rating. I know many people have let me know that they've given us the five-star rating, and it's really helpful just in terms of popping up the popularity of the podcast. Also, if you have any feedback, good or bad, I'm happy to hear that I'm doing a horrible job and how I can improve. Or if you think there's something we're doing well, a.segal, S-E-G-A-L, at shalhevet.org, S-H-A-L-H-E-V-T, H-E-V-E-T dot O-R-G. Thank you. And now the podcast begins. Okay, David, I always start my podcast off with a couple of quick hitting questions. Tell me what you do for your morning cup of joe. I am extraordinarily utilitarian with my coffee. I have been gifted many fancy coffee makers. I They are lost on me. I don't really use them. I like a coffee that, uh, I like instant coffee. It just does the trick. There's really? a specific instant coffee that I like. Which brand? Share with our listeners. <laughs> it is called, it's from Germany. Maybe you know the name. Help me out. Not maybe Germany or from hmm. Europe. Good question. Uh, I don't know the name, but it's a German instant maybe coffee. Maybe not German. It's some It's some instant European. coffee that my father introduced me from Europe. And, and, it, and, and you just feel it gives you that morning jolt. So on a regular morning, you wake up, you take a, a I spoon. I walk past my Nescafe and my fancy coffee Nespresso maker. Nespresso. Nespresso. All walk past it that I've used each of those probably once or twice, and I go straight for the you instant coffee. You are the coffee. most day class A coffee drinker I've ever had on my podcast. Yeah. How does yeah. that feel? It's really a privilege. You know, I, interestingly enough, when I was in Yeshiva University, I had a chevruta, otherwise known as a study partner, in the rabbinical school who used to even want to be more utilitarian than you, David. His name was Dove Siegman. He would skip the coffee and just eat the grinds. He felt like, why waste time on the yeah. water? My, my wife asked me that I stop doing that. So <laughs> you started, you were doing that at some me, point. She asked me to stop. So. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Okay, how about something, Give us, tell us something you're reading now that would be surprising to people that you just love. I love I love book recommendations. Uh, my my shelves are really the key uh, the key to my soul. Something that I am reading now that would be unexpected, or something you love. Recommend a book to our listeners. The Most Human Human by Brian Christensen. Tell me a little bit about it. Give me the thirty second plug. It is about somebody who took the. Turing test, which is a test we give computers to prove whether or not they're, they have some semblance of artificial intelligence, and they give a prize every year for the computer that is the most human. And aside from the prize that they give to the computer that's the most human, they also give a prize to the human being who comes off most human in this 
conversation that they have with a panel of judges, and it is about somebody's uh, entering into this contest and winning the most human-human contest. Wow. I, I, my mind, it feels blown right now. I do wonder what prize do they give to the computer? Like, does the It is called the Loebner Prize. It's based on the... Turing test, which was developed by Alan, Alan Turing. Alan Turing. Are we talking about the cryptologist or cryptographer exactly. who was later uh, acknowledged to be gay? Yes. Interesting. Yes. Got it. He was very well known and he's sort of- An early pioneer of computer science. And now they give it a prize called the Loebner Prize. And it's basically a panel of judges that has a exclusively text-based conversation with computers and with humans. And the computer that is ranked most human gets a prize. And the human that is ranked most human gets a prize. It is a book that has really shaped the way that I think. We only do one book recommendation, right? Yeah. What was the name okay. of the book one more time? For the us? Most Human Human. I don't want people to have to- re- re- like rewind because sure. this is fascinating. I'm gonna I'm gonna buy the book after after we're done here. I wish I had one of those uh, referral links so I could get money for referring people to Amazon, but not yet. I would love that as well. Can we arrange that? My sound engineer Noe's saying we can arrange that. Okay, we'll do that. That would be great. Well, this actually is a great segue, David, into my first question about you. Um, and and I like to ask guests about their origin story. I don't know a lot of people who write for Mishpacha magazine. For those listeners who don't know what that is, that's a magazine that comes out of the, I would say, more ultra-Orthodox community of the Orthodox community. Also works at NCSY, no longer standing for anything, just a youth group, uh, who's reading the books you're reading and also at the new school for your doctorate. So how do you, David Bashevkin, come to this crazy amalgam of things that don't seem to fit with each other. It's extraordinarily cliche, but I have extraordinarily unique parents who raised a family of siblings who were each encouraged to really have their own unique brand of Judaism that was very much anchored in individuality and tradition. Uh, All of my siblings have gone on different paths, but I grew up in a house. My father is an oncologist, which obviously shapes the tone and tenor of a home, uh, watching people come in and literally struggling for their lives really shapes the way that you think about your own values and what's important and the mark and the contributions that you want to make in your own lifetime. Uh, Coupled with my mother, who uh, is a brilliant writer and creative thinker, and both of them together uh, really raised us each in a way where we're all extraordinarily different, we're all extraordinarily close, and that shaped, I think, my early thinking, aside from some important teachers who I was exposed to later, but as I've said many times, if I were to put all the teachers I've had over the course of my lifetime on one side of the scale, it would not outweigh the influence that my parents wield. You said your mother was a writer. Where did, is she published or she's a... She's a short story writer. She She's done like uh, PR work and uh, no. She's just the creative type. She's the creative type. My mother is the kind of person who on a... Shabbos afternoon, you will see her reading uh, the Ramban, known as Nachmanides, on the couch in depth and coming up with creative thoughts on the Parsha, on the weekly Torah reading, 
uh, that are genuinely astounding. And it really shaped the way that I look at text and I read text. My mother was the first person when I came home in first grade and was complaining about one of the early morning prayers known as Ashrei, which is written as an an acrostic when the Aleph base, the Hebrew alphabet, and I told my mother, I, uh, I, hate, I hate praying. I said, I cannot stand this anymore. I was in first grade. And my mother put me on her lap and said, let's become friends with Ashrei together. And she started reading it with me. And kind of learning how to develop friendship with texts is something that is with me to this very day. What was day. your childhood like? Were you, did you have an easy childhood? Were you struggling in school? It's a great question. I did not... In many ways, I had an easy childhood. I was always very bright. I did very well in school. I grew up in a home that was surrounded in every corner by books. We were a very book-centric home. Uh, We had battles with my father over uh, television access. We never had cable. I my. Every couple months, we would get a television that would just one one Sunday morning miraculously disappear. I think my father told us it got stolen every every six weeks. Uh, they they did not like television. We were constantly we were constantly reading. But my child was also uh, very difficult. I was an extraordinarily anxious child, uh-huh. very very anxious. And starting in fifth grade, uh, that definitely was a a backpack a weight. That I had to carry with me. You still carry it with you? Or you've sort of, I absolutely sort of chucked it off. I absolutely carry it with me. But we developed a family culture because anxiety is not something foreign to my family. We developed a very humorous family culture right. when it comes to uh, dealing with the anxieties of life. The term we use in our family is quackiness. That we I, we can literally turn to one another and be like, I'm feeling a little quacky, which is code word for genuine struggles with anxiety that come up so from time to time. Yeah. But we have a very warm family culture around those struggles. I love it. I love it. You know, I think there's a tremendous amount of anxiety in society and yeah, more recently, I don't know if you follow the National Basketball Association, do you? To a degree, yes. So it's interesting. A number of players have started coming out saying that they are struggling with different mental health issues. DeMar DeRozan, who's on the Toronto Kevin Raptors. Love. Kevin Love. It's very interesting. And I think, you know, a lot of times people look at athletes and they say, like, are they role models? Are they not role models? But when they show a little bit of, um, you know, they, they just show their human side to everybody and, and they they're a little bit more open, I think it, it opens it for the world a little bit. And it's interesting to hear them acknowledging anxiety issues mm-hmm. and mental health issues. And, uh, you know, more and more, I think that that's something that's becoming, uh, people are open about it and it's really supportive sure. to a lot of people. Yeah, it's not something I, I you know, it's, it's not my my number one status. I'm always welcome to uh, to speak about it. But what originally drew me to the world of, of comedy was I found that that was a community of performers as dysfunctional as they are, who are extraordinarily open around their own struggles in this area. And from a very young age, I was very taken, not just by the humor and the laughter that is filled with kind of the personalities that surround stand-up comedy, but from some of their philosophical outlook, which I think is genuinely profound. You, and so meaning they're taking their anxiety head on or whatever issues they have, they're, yeah. they're very open with it and, and that grappling is their comedy. My, yeah, my mental health role models, and I would put in that category Stephen Colbert, Gary Shandling, Conan O'Brien, are comedians who have found a way to confront life with a great deal of graciousness, sweetness, and humor. 
uh, but who are also very realistic about how difficult struggles in life can be. Mm. And they just have an outlook that I just find so charming. It's interesting. A previous guest of mine, Elon Gold, who has his own Netflix special, Taken and Chosen. He's a Jewish comedian. So he's very, he's friendly with a lot of the comedians you've just listed, including Stephen Colbert. And he remarked about Stephen Colbert. Not only is he an incredibly brilliant comedian, but he is a, is a fine human being. I mean, he's about the best. Him. Yeah. I'm not friends with any of the comedians I just mentioned. So. <laughs> you, you have no names to drop. Zero. Zero. I, I, you know, you just made one, made me think of one thing and then I'll get into the radical moderation portion of, of some of this discussion. Um, I once heard you speak and on your introduction, your sort of bio, you talk about failures that you've had. It's interesting. It's, and I, I often speak about the notion of like embracing failure and how that's a, a really positive uh, moment to show some real weakness uh, and, and to bond with your audience. Is there some overlap between that, meaning your anxiety and sort of embracing it? Like I'm anxious about whether I'm going to impress this audience. And so I'm going to go so directly at that anxiety and just let you know I'm imperfect. I, I can't meet those expectations that you might have for me or those two, like two separate things. There's this anxiety piece you have, and then you've embraced failure as a separate mode of communication. It's a great question. The, the The piece I think you're referring to is something I wrote for First Things a few years ago, where I wrote a kind of tongue-in-cheek article uh, talking about bio blurbs and the professional community and how people in their bio blurbs, uh, you know, they like talking about all of their incredible successes and, you know, they're kind of all generic and they have, you know, and, and reach me on www.soandso.com. They have their own personal websites. And I wrote an article about how part of what I think authentic living is, you know, it's a little bit of a gimmick, but if we include it in our bio blurb, a failure or two about what we have not accomplished or what we have failed at accomplishing would go some way in reminding people that life is not as sequential as many people think. And I ended the article with, I'll start with mine. And I mentioned the fact that there was a prestigious fellowship that I was rejected from twice. Uh, that's really where I began. And I think that a lot of a person's role in public life is an act of consistent recreation of self where there is an unhealthy notion that anytime you get in front of an audience, every speech you deliver, every podcast you do, this is my first podcast, but every- You're, uh, you're doing excellent. Thank you so much. But every every public outing that you do, what you mentioned is you want to impress people and that can become very unhealthy. It's something that I think a lot of comedians, a lot of actors, and a lot of rabbis, a lot of educators deal with where they feel they're only as good as their last performance. So every performance, they're actually recreating themselves. It's interesting. And that, and just yeah, to sorry, be clear, sure. that, that's something I resist 100%, where I will go into, and I've learned to go into certain presentations and not be as polished or as excellent as I would have hoped and walk away and say my sense of self and integrity and you know self image is still intact i love it i absolutely love it i'll be vulnerable also by the way i was rejected from the exact same prestigious fellowship that you were rejected from but just, only once just once okay so just I'm, once my fa- yeah so i've my failures are are, are a drop more glamorous uh, yeah, where competitive competitive failure should be a new Olympic sport. So before we uh, jump right in with two feet to the radical moderation uh, piece, can you just explain to people, my listeners? Some might know what NCSY is, some might not. Just what do you do for this youth organization? What's your role? 
NCSY is a Jewish youth movement that sort of looks to inspire teenagers from the ages of 13 to the to the high school age. And we inspire them on retreats, on leadership programming. As director of education, I have three main responsibilities. I run national events that we run every year, something called Yarche Kala, which is a national learning program that services close to 400 teens, as amongst the other national leadership programs for all of the different regions in our organization throughout the country. The second thing that we do in the education department is develop content for all of the educators around the field. And we have an education website that your listeners are more than welcome to check out, education.ncsy.org. And finally, I do a lot of the training for our emerging educational leaders. Do you look at other religions for inspiration to see what they're doing with their youth? Is there, do you have a colleague in some other Christian youth group or something like that? Or you're mostly focused inward? I'm mostly focused inward, but not to the exclusion of other religions. I've been very influenced by a documentary called Jesus Camp, which uh, is a really powerful documentary about the youth movement in the Christian world and some of the questions that it raises about manipulation and how to make sure that your educational process does not infringe on the emotional integrity of the teens. Uh, is something that I keep on the forefront of my mind and something I speak about constantly with the educators who I work with and mentor. And secondly, there, there are some Christian poets who I have found are able to express their relationship with religiosity, with spirituality, and God in ways that I think a lot of Jewish writers might shy away from. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask a question that I did not have planned, and it may be too delicate. What is your view on other religions? Meaning, what is their role? You know, because I often look at, I worked in the youth group that you're that you're a professional in now at some point in my college years. And I was always, I found it incredible. You're giving Jewish teens like a really uplifting experience and showing them the beauty of Judaism. And then you kind of look over and you see all these Christian youth groups and they're, they're doing great things and they're giving kids real values. And you kind of think, oh, I mean, are we all, are we all in the same good fight here? Or is it like two different teams, you know, on two different paths or there's an overlap? How do you see the other religions? I'm influenced by a letter that was written by Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, who was a rabbi who died in, I think, 1986. He was a leader of the American Orthodox scene, and he was written a letter during the debate about prayer in public schools. And when this came to the Supreme Court, he was asked by, I believe, the chief rabbi at the time of St. Louis, who had asked him about whether or not the Jewish view that non-Jews should be should be praying, or do we believe that they're kind of they're, they're not part of the Jewish faith, so they're praying to a God that isn't our own, so it's not something that we should even care about. So leaving aside the political question of prayer in public school, he absolutely affirms that the prayer and relationship to God with people outside of the Jewish religion is meaningful and has integrity. And that is something that I hold truly. I think that the path to God has a lot of different ways. And there is something that is unique and has a unique truthfulness that I find in the Jewish faith. But I do not dismiss for a moment the innate spirituality and authentic spirituality of people from other faiths. 
I love it. I'm glad I asked the question. Thank you for that. Okay, so let's jump into some radical moderation. And, and you mentioned the word authenticity a few times. I don't know if you realize it. It's something that seems to be right on the tip of your tongue. And I think it speaks to who you are as a person. There's something very authentic about you. You kind of have so many different pieces of you and you're engaged in so many different worlds. And I think there's so much authenticity there. And I'm wondering, how can we as a Jewish community... Uh, allow ourselves to be very true to ourselves and authentic in our beliefs, yet have radical moderation towards other parts of our community. Because I don't, I don't see that. And I think we all see like the American public, uh, you know, politics, but it's mirrored in our Jewish community. It seems to be getting worse. The rifts with, within orthodoxy. I see a book called Why Open Orthodoxy is Not Orthodox. And then some guy on Facebook who's blogging every time someone from an open Orthodox Yeshivat Chovavei Torah says anything he, he thinks is beyond the pale. He writes, you know, you see this person's not Orthodox. And then there's YU and then there's uh, Chavetz Chaim and, uh, you know, more right wing. And then there's the Haredi community and everybody's looking at each other with jaundiced eyes. And then that's just within the Orthodox community. And then you have all the other denominations. How, is there a bit, what are we doing wrong? How can we do better so that we can still be true to ourselves and open and, and treat other communities with respect? It's a great question. It's it's funny you mentioned that book. I studied in yeshivas near Yisroel, where I believe the author in that book came from. I've been very vocal about my distaste for the book and how I think it really took the discourse a step in the wrong direction. I have friends who are very vocal opponents of, of Chovave, and they have every right to do so. But uh, I did not like the tenor of that book, and it's something that I've been fairly fairly vocal about. But leaving that book aside, I think that your question to some degree has, there's a misunderstanding of on what level in our lives is authenticity found. I think people oftentimes look for authenticity on the communal and institutional level, and they look to affirm their individual identity based on their communal and institutional affiliations. And I think that so long as that is where you are trying to find an expression for your authenticity, you are going to be lost. I think authenticity always needs to be found on the individual level, and authenticity in my mind, doesn't mean that there cannot be dissonance between where you are and the institutions or communities that you affiliate with. Everybody can have ideals. Everybody can have broader platforms that they agree with on some issues and not all issues. I forgot who it was who quoted, but the person who disagrees with you 20% of the time is not your 20% enemy. It's your 80% of the time friend. And I think that we need to realize that authenticity is only going to come from you yourself and the way that you relate on a broader communal level um, serves a different purpose. But I don't think that's where you should be seeking authentic expression. So it's interesting, you know, you're obviously, you're, you're living what you just described. You've chosen to take different pieces of different communities and embrace those as your own. And obviously, you know, maybe you're identifying with some pieces in the yeshivish community, in the more ultra-Orthodox community, you might not identify with everything there. And so you might have things you identify with in the more liberal progressive world, meaning outside of the Jewish world, and you're taking those pieces there and integrating them into yourself. How is average Joe who's listening to this supposed to do that? They like to go to synagogue. They like to 
pray with the people they know. They like to have meals with the people they know. They send their kids to the schools of the people they know, meaning it just it's almost safer. And you're asking people to, to drop that to some degree and go and embrace different thoughts and different groups that might that that, you know, there's this notion of intersectionality. So here I am. I'm thinking I'm all in on the ultra orthodox stuff, except there's an issue that I think on social justice we could do better. But if I go and I embrace the people who are doing the social justice, the people in my community who are the, you know, the ultra-Orthodox community are going to say, hey, what, why are you aligning yourself with these people, uh, you know, or, or vice versa? Sure. I, I think that there needs to be a certain measure of humbleness in the way we approach authenticity. And I would say to the average Joe that you need to realize that whatever platform, whatever movement, whatever community, whatever political affiliation, religious affiliation that you have in your life, it is going to be imperfect. It is not going to be a perfect fit for you, and it certainly will not be a perfect fit for your family. But you need to pick a starting point, and you need to pick different orientations. Ultimately, I believe authenticity begins and ends in the home and what type of family values you want to create for yourself, uh, what is on your shelves, what is... What does your kitchen look like? What is the culture of your family? I think that is the best way to build the type of children who are going to have the tools to find authenticity. I heard an amazing, uh, something amazing when I was learning in Nary Yisroel from a Rebbe of mine. Uh, who's a the, Rebbe is a teacher. A teacher of mine, correct, who uh, had a, a, a long white beard and looked like a very... You know, a very serious rabbi who religious uh, religious values were were above everything else, and he reminded people in a parenting course that he gave that he said a lot of people in the ultra orthodox community. He wasn't saying to the exclusion of others; he was just talking to his audience. Make a mistake that they think the goal of parenting is to instill a fear of God in your children, to instill a religious sentiment among your children. And he said that is not the goal of parenting. The goal of parenting is to create independent children who are capable of making good decisions. Hopefully, their definition of good decisions are going to be in line with what your values are. But the goal is not to convince them of your values. The goal is to create and develop the capacity to make healthy decisions. And I think that's where authenticity emerges. I think that also requires a tremendous amount of confidence by that rabbi in Judaism. Meaning I'm not scared that you're going to choose something else. I believe if you're shown a beautiful, honest, authentic view of this in your home life, if you show your kids what a true, you know, how you live in a, in a way that fears God and loves God and sees God in your life, so that will resonate with your children. You don't have to be worried. That, you know, meaning I think there's a lot of strength there sure. that, that, rabbi, that rabbi clearly assumed. Absolutely. So let's, let's talk, just we'll end this episode on the following uh, debate that took place. So a number, uh, maybe a year or two ago, Brene Brown, <clears throat> who's a great author who I love, very inspiring. She talks a lot about failure and embracing it and being vulnerable. And so some of the stuff you were talking about before, she's really on the front, the cutting edge of that. Uh, she was taken to task by a uh, writer, Adam Grant. Adam Grant, very popular. He wrote the uh, originals. Which one? Give and take. Give and take. He wrote the originals, I think. Uh, is that him? Adam Grant? I think so. Sure. Great, great thinker. He was, you know, the headline of his article was something along the lines of like, hey, Brene Brown, it's great to be authentic, but like, 
maybe just only if you're Oprah Winfrey. Like you can be authentic, but there's a there's some degree where we don't want to see the full you. And they go, they went at it with each other. And of course, in the end, they came to an understanding and that authenticity is great and it's valuable. But I'd ask you, you know, here you are jumping between communities. You're, you're literally new school, NCSY, Yeshiva University, uh, Mishpacha Magazine. You're all over the map. Do you, in some situations, adjust? Do you show your full self uh, or do you just show pieces of yourselves to the various groups depending on their expectations? Do the people at Yeshiva University know that sometimes you can be a little bit more progressive? You might be a little bit more, you know, ultra-Orthodox. Do the people in the ultra-Orthodox world know that you can be more progressive? Or are you sort of tailoring your interactions with people to their expectations? I think to a degree, I think that they may know that there's more to me than I have in any one institution or any one place that I am, but it comes from an abiding commitment to the fact that I am not my job, I am not the institution I work for, I am not my job title, I am not my salary, I am not the person who I report to, and I am not the person who I manage. There is a greater sense of self that encompasses all of these factors, and at no point do I feel obligated to squeeze my entire sense of self to any one place or any one job title. So in any of those given windows, when they look through, I'm sure they see and they acknowledge the fact that there is probably more. I'm not deliberately hiding anything and I'm not deliberately trying to obfuscate. It's just from an abiding assumption that I have that I am not obligated to squeeze all of myself into every place that I exist. I love that. Do you sense, it was interesting, as you were saying that, I had a feeling inside myself about my family. I think sometimes I see it too frequently. People feel like they're defined by their children and how their children act or their spouse and how their spouse acts in public rather than, listen, that's my spouse. Those are my children. They are individual people. I'm not defined by them. I'm proud of who they are and what they're being and they're their own voice. They don't have to be exactly who I am. And you're in a public position. I'm in a public position. That can sometimes be challenging. I mean, I know rabbi's children. You're the child of a rabbi. Is that true? Yeah, I wrote an article and I wrote a book, a Hebrew work on the role of sin and failure in Hebrew. And I also wrote an English article in Jewish Action analyzing the phenomenon of rabbi's children. I'm not the child of a rabbi, but being the child of an oncologist might be the closest thing to that type of communal figure. And I think that that is 100% correct, that you really need to make sure. It's not even living vicariously through your children, but allowing your children and your spouse to make mistakes, to sometimes say the wrong thing in front of you, to sometimes embarrass you. And it's on two levels. It's not being embarrassed that you are embarrassed because a lot of times people look at the fact that even a family member can embarrass them as an indictment on their commitment or their family life. That, that, that's okay. Right. Somebody embarrassed you. Somebody said something that you wouldn't have said. You're not running the UN in your family. Not all of your, your children are not your diplomats. Your wife is not an ambassador. Uh, you're running a family with a lot of individuals who are doing their own thing, and it's about being able to take pride, but taking pride in their own individuality and their own authenticity. Awesome. Well, I want to thank our listeners for tuning into the first half of my uh, podcast with Rabbi David Bashevkin of NCSY, the OU, Mishpacha Magazine, and Yeshiva University. I hope you'll give us a five-star rating so that others will find out about us as well, and look forward to you tuning into the second half of this incredible incredible podcast where we will play a game called Radical Moderation. Looking forward to seeing you then.